I'm Peter Wall. And I'm Jennifer Carnegie. Welcome to the Amicus Leadership Podcast. On each episode, we'll be speaking to inspiring leaders about the ups and downs of their careers. As well as doing what we do best, using our years of leadership experience in both the military and commercial business to get leaders to the top of their game. You can listen to each new podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. So subscribe now to make sure you don't miss any of our conversations. Okay, let's get going. So welcome to today's Amicus Leadership Podcast. And we're very privileged to have Bukola Adisa with us. Bukola grew up in Nigeria. Uh, having graduated from university, she worked in the UK banking sector, becoming a senior player in risks and controls in one of the major UK banks. From that leadership role, she moved to found Career Masterclass uh, back in 2015, which is a, an online uh, learning portal for black, Asian, and minority ethnic people seeking uh, leadership and career roles in UK. Bukola, it's a great privilege to have you with us. Hi, Bukola. Why did you set up Career Masterclass? Right. Um, so I set up Career Masterclass, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't intentional to run an organization, because when I set up Career Masterclass, I was in an executive role. I was working at a um, at a big UK bank um, at that time in 2015. Um, but I was I was I was I was successful. I was the most senior black woman in the bank, and. But I've always had a sense of giving back and I've always had a sense of social justice. So it, it, I looked around me and I looked at the tables at which I was sitting and which I was having conversations. And I looked at the team I was leading and the leadership team I was part of. And I was an only, you know, I was the only one. And um, I got uncomfortable with that because I knew just from the work I do in the community that there were many people that looked like me, that were talented, that also absolutely deserved a seat at that table. And I'd, I've never been one to admire the problem. And I'd ne I've never been one to feel like I was so powerless as to not be able to effect change. So I thought, well, how can I help? At that point, there were many people doing the advocacy work. So people um, petitioning the government and petitioning employers and many people clamoring for change. But I thought where I could add value um, to the broader fights for inclusion and equality in our society was to prepare people for the opportunities that I was so certain would come. I'd always been very certain that change would come, but I needed to ensure that people were prepared to be able to take advantage of those opportunities when change comes. That's a fantastic story. And, you know, we've witnessed ourselves through the conference we attended and talking to some of the subjects who are there, uh, some of the people who had um, signed up, the participants, just how successful that's been. So far from admiring, admiring the problem, you've moved the needle a long way. But could we go back a bit to when you were in a disadvantaged situation working perhaps in the same institution or other banks in UK or elsewhere, how you, what your experience was and how you overcame the challenges 
to become the most senior black woman in a big bank? Yeah, so um, the, the like I said, you know, when, when people ask me, they ask me the questions, uh, I, because people could be tempted to look at a LinkedIn profile, to look at my LinkedIn profile, to look at the success and think, or you've lived a charmed life, or you've not, you've not, um, you've not um, come come up against challenges, or you've not been, you, you've not had to navigate some of the things that they've navigated. And I always remind people, I grew up in Nigeria, which is a majority black country. So I grew up in Nigeria, we were all black, right? The issue we have in Nigeria, from an equality point of view, is gender. Um, so I grew up in a country where the president is black, the ministers is black, the CEOs are black, everyone is black, black men, right? Um, but then I, I came into this country and there were just no black people in places of power. And you go, you know, you go to the you go to the station and the attendants at the station are black, the cleaners are black, the securities, you know, security people are black, and that starts to do something to your psyche and it sort of tries to tell you subconsciously that people like you, this is their sort of their place in society. But I'd grown up in a country where people like me were, were, were successful. So I refused to buy into that narrative. And even when people told me, oh, no, it's not going to be possible. Or, you know, I've had people tell me, you know, jobs like, you know, you're looking for this sort of jobs. That is not for people like you. That's not for black people. No white person would ever hire someone, you know, like you to be in this kind of um, in this kind of position. But I refused that because it was just not my reality from the way I grew up. And I can remember working in one organization and um, and I worked really hard, but it was just so hard to progress. And one day I actually said to the director, I said, can you tell me what I need to do to progress? Because I'm a hard worker. Hard work is what I know. And I, I know I know I'm talented. I know I'm smart. Um, and I know that I can absolutely progress. And this this man looked at me and said, well, the only way you can progress is to go back home. And I was genuinely confused because when he said go back home, I thought go back home to Hatfield because I lived in Hatfield in Africa at the time. I thought go back home to Hatfield. What do you mean? He said, no, 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 no. You need to go back home to Nigeria. And I said, why? He said, well, if you go back home to Nigeria, maybe your parents will be able to help you, you know, get into an organization there. You can progress. And so I, I had two options. I could either assimilate what he had told me and actually think about maybe going back home with my four-month-old son, or I could stay here and fight and refuse that that was going to be my narrative. So I stayed and I fought. And I said to myself, well, if you are not going to recognize my talents, my skills, I'm going to move away from this department. So I stayed within the organization, but I moved to another organization and I was able to progress. But not a lot of people would have that sort of strength or that amount of resilience, especially when you are, you overcome and, you, and when you face, you come into contact with these sort of situations day in, day out, it has a way of chipping away at your resilience. So, um, so that is what I try to do for people. That's what I try to do for people from our community to say, you know, the, the organization may tell you one thing, your boss may tell you one thing, the society may tell you one thing, but nothing is as powerful as the narrative you tell yourself. Yeah, it just boggles my mind that that managers like that, they're certainly not leaders, but managers like that, that that are, you know, they can see what you're producing, they can see the quality and the, the quantity of the work that you're doing, they can see the value that they're bringing to the organisation, but still they think, well, you know, there's no place for you to, to progress into the organisation. It's just, it's crazy that they would limit themselves in that way. 
the work that you, you're doing with Career Masterclass, is, is leadership an important dimension of the work that you do with, uh, with BAME individuals? Absolutely, absolutely. It's at a very, I mean, it's one of the most critical pillars of the work that we do because it's not enough for me or it's not enough for us at Career Masterclass to produce people that will be successful in their careers. It's critically important that these people go on to become leaders in whatever sphere they find themselves, whether that is within the organization, whether they go on to set up their own organization, whether even it's within their homes and their societies and their communities, it's really important to us that we produce the next generation of leaders that will lead in a different way to what we have seen for the past um, hundred or so years. Because what our what we currently have in terms of um, the current crop of leadership that we have doesn't work for us. And there needs to be another way. And I'm, I'm determined to play my part in whatever small way I can to invest into this next generation of leaders that will lead with empathy, that will lead with, will lead with warmth, that will lead um, from a place of authenticity, that will lead from a place of collaboration, and that will lead from a sense of social justice in wanting the world to be a fairer place for everyone. I say, I say to people, my mission at Career Masterclass is to democratize and level the playing field so that irrespective of whether you went to you know, the, the, the good schools or not, irrespective of whether you know someone or not, with the skills and the knowledge and everything that we teach you, you can go out there and become a better leader and have a successful career. So that sort of feeds into that narrative. So um, that's very clear that you know leadership uh, has, has two merits for you. One, it's important, and two, it's going to get more BAME people into the places where they have influence to um, push the purpose of your masterclass, which is to democratize the the landscape. Absolutely. Um, could you talk us a bit about to us a bit about your uh, journey as a leader? My journey as a leader has been very interesting. Um, for a while, um, you know, when people say to me, you know, you're a leader in the community or you're a, le- or, or you're, you're a leader, you know, um, someone we look up to. I didn't quite understand that because it wasn't ex- it wasn't really an intentional journey that I had set out to um, to undertake. But when I reflect and I look at the way I was brought up, I will go all the way back to, you know, my background growing up um, in Nigeria as one of five children and the values that my parents instilled in each and every one of us. You know, it was the value of you always run an open house. You know, I can remember there was a time in my in my family where we were we had about my my my, my parents have lived in a very big house in Nigeria, and there were like um, there were about thirty of us living in the house. And um, being from an African background, as the first daughter of the family. I took on a lot of the task. I took on the cooking, the cleaning, the corralling everybody, making sure that the home ran smoothly. And I remember one day I was just so exhausted. And I said to my, you know, to my dad, and I said, this is too much. Like, who are all these people? We only know when they come. We don't know when they leave. And my dad said something to me. My dad said, in our culture, you owe it to your, when, when, when you've been blessed, you owe it to be a blessing to other people. And he said, you know, I have five of you. I don't know where in the world you are going to end up, you know, in future. But my hope is that if you were ever in a tricky situation, you needed help, that a stranger or someone you don't really know as as well would open up their homes and help you guys at that point in time. And that never left me because 
I came here straight after university, not knowing a lot of people. And people opened up their homes to me and they helped me in that way. So it's the way in which our parents sort of instilled those values to, in, into us. The way uh, my father would say to, you know, my father would say to me, you know, figure out what we're all going to, what we're going to eat for the next one week. As a teenager, I'm talking about 13, 14, you know, the way my father would sort of say, you know, send money home and say, you know, go to the market. And, you know, when we say market, we're not talking about Tesco, where it's all nicely laid out. You know, markets in Nigeria is like really, is a really, is marketplace. It's hard. It's not a place of fun. You know, and my parents would say, you figure out, you plan out the meals for the week. You tell your siblings what to do. Now, I had an older brother, but in the African culture, boys were like revered. So he had an easy ride, right? Um, so, but when I look at when it, th those days, I used to absolutely detest and resent what I felt was ill treatment. But when I look at the resilience is built in me now, when I look at the way I'm able to organize and even organize my, you know, my own organization, and my, my, my company and organize my family and plan and be resilient and not being faced by challenges or difficult situations. I'm grateful for the way my leadership lesson started. I want to go back to something that you said earlier when you were describing about how, um, why you set up Career Master Masterclass. You said, you know, for people like you, um, the leadership wasn't working for us. So just can we just unpack that a little bit? Because I think it would be helpful for for people like me, you know, white women. Um, what do I need to know? How can I be better? How can I lead better? Um, what what is it that you need? Why was it not working for you? Yeah, um, it wasn't working because um, in the in any organization, one size doesn't fit all. And in any organization, there must be intention. We must all be intentional to ensure that everyone within the organization feels safe. And I've discussed this concept before of psychological safety, because in the absence of psychological safety, we cannot bring our best selves to work. In the absence of psychological safety, our colleagues are spending time where they could be problem solving and developing innovative solutions and being and contributing and be, bringing value. They are spending that time they could be using to move the organization forward, to cover and to project themselves in a way that is non-threatening. I'll give you an example. I have a friend who works in the city of London, is, is black, he is one of the most talented people I know. He is super smart, but he's a six feet something big black guy, right? Automatically, when he gets into work, he can see that sometimes some people just view him as a threat. And he's the most gentle, lovely, you know, loving character that there is out there. But so he in meetings will sit in a meeting and when normally, you know, there's a healthy debate in meetings, right? People debate and, you know, you agree, you disagree. But he's very careful about what he says. So while he's sitting in meetings and if he has to disagree, where, where someone else would just outrightly say, actually, I don't agree. Um, I think we should do it this way. He has to think of a less threatening way to put his point across. So he's sort of like two steps behind. He's two steps behind you know, his, his, his colleagues because he's, he's using a lot of emotional and mental energy to project a less threatening version of himself. And that is, that's just not right. 
So in that circumstance, what should the leader of that team be doing to, to make a, a level playing field for him? So in that kind of circumstance, what the leader of the team should be doing is become better at ensuring that everyone's voice is heard. Um, when you see someone that is, you know, that is from, and again, not only black people, even women, it happens to women, um, or it happens to anyone that is that is different, anyone that has a sort of a different um, characteristic about them, it happens to them. You silence yourself and you don't speak out uh, because you spend so much time worrying that you are different and you don't want people. So for instance, for a long time, I'll give you an example of myself. I talk really fast. I'm a very confident person. I'm quite direct in the way I speak because that's just the way I've been brought up. That's my personality. Um, but throughout my career, I've had to con I've had to sort of contend with this angry black woman or your aggressive, you know, kind of sort of stereotype. Until until a point in my career, I just decided, you know what, I'm just not going to let this affect me anymore because because I'm so careful and I'm so mindful of that stereotype where in meetings I would I have a point I want to get across. Sometimes I just think, you know what, I can't just be bothered because people will think I'm angry and I'm just aggressive. And so I'll keep quiet. And then what we don't understand is that by keeping quiet, my voice is not being heard by my voice not being heard. People perceive me as not being confident. And in the workplace, Confidence is actually more important than competence, right? And so when the year end comes and people sit in a room debating, people just, people don't say, oh, she's not confident. They just say, oh, we just don't think she's ready. And they can't quite articulate why they think I'm not ready. But it's because I've just not been the most confident version of myself. That has been, people take that to mean you're not competent. And so we are trapped in this cycle. So what leaders can do is to make sure that everyone's voice is heard, create an atmosphere of psychological safety. No one should ever be um, made to feel like they are um, they are penalized just because of things that they cannot help. They can't help the color of their skin. They can't help their gender. You know, obviously, if someone is, if, if you have a team member that is being disruptive or being abusive to the other team member, as a leader, you step up and you look and you and you deal with that situation. But that's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is where you routinely have members of your team that are being silenced and not necessarily being silenced by you, but just being silenced by this environment, not being conducive. We need to do a better job at drawing those people out and making sure that those people's voices are, you know, that those people's voices are heard and making it intentional and quite clear that you actually value what they have to say and that they are, they are a highly valued and highly important member of the team. Those are the kind of things that go to make people feel like I am part of this team and I can be myself and I can relax and I can calm down. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a big thing that affects um, anyone that feels that they are different, whether that is from a sexuality, race or gender point of view, or even disability. If you um, put this in a leadership context, which is, you know, where we're we coming from, um, clearly uh, leaders have a, an obligation to get the very best uh, insights and thoughts out of the people at their disposal. And that's really one of the things you're alluding to there, isn't it, Bakola? Absolutely. Absolutely. For any organization, the strength is in the people. It doesn't matter whether you are you sell cutting-edge technology or you are a Tesco and you sell food. Any organization, the greatest asset you have is in your people because it's people that design solutions, it's people that design technology. 
And to think that as a society, we are not fully exploring the amazing benefits and different uh, innovations and ideas that reside in a section of society. It just, for me, like the mind boggles. Why wouldn't you want to fully explore the potential of each and everybody on your team? Because that is just what makes for an amazing, amazing organization. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But we know that one of the reasons is what is that uh, people think they know the answer. They're impatient. Time is against them. Uh, you know, sometimes it's it's just harder work to get the more reserved people to put their thoughts on the table, and they may feel that it's there's a barrier, and they don't want to embarrass them. There's all sorts of reasons why people. It's not necessarily out of malice or anything like that. Or, or idleness or lack of attention to detail. There's lots of um, sort of frictions people have to overcome to get the most out of a diverse team. And, you know, our view would be uh, from an amicus perspective that is that, you know, leaders should look at themselves very critically to see whether they are putting enough energy into getting this right. And inevitably there are various techniques, but a lot of it's about sentiment and motivation. Yeah, and intentionality is that's where it starts from. Um, if you have, if you have, no, if you don't have good intentions, you cannot marry good intentions with actions. So we absolutely have to start from having the intention. To your point, Peter, to say actually, as a leader of this team, am I ask yourself the difficult questions, and try and not. I, I think a lot of us are very, very defensive. Um, but if we if we if we put self-defense and you know that feeling of defensiveness to one side and ask ourselves the tough questions, am I am I fully exploring the benefits of my team? Is this the best my team can be? Uh, what is missing from my team? And why is it that um, you look around your management team? If everyone around your management team looks the same way, feel you know, talks the same way, why is that? Is that because this is what I'm comfortable with? What's you know what what do I need to do to put myself under a little bit of discomfort and 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 turn things around a little bit and you know um and try things a different way? I mean, as a as a founder of a of a of a young early stage company, I ask myself those questions. You know, am I am I surrounding myself with people of a like mind? Am I am I just very comfortable in just hiring black people? What is missing on my team? Where can I get that? I ask myself those tough, tough, tough questions. Now, what I found is you have to be intentional to build a diverse team because by as humans, our nature is to revert to what we know and what is comfortable. Without intentionality, you cannot build a diverse team. It's just not possible. You can't just leave it to, you can't just leave it to, to you know, to, to happenstance and believe that it will just happen that way. No, it won't because we default to what we know and what we, what we, what, what we are familiar with. Do you think it's tougher being a leader from a, a, a BAME background? I think being a leader in itself is tough. Um, it's not leadership is not an is not an easy thing because uh, you are it's not it's not something you ever switch off, especially if you want to be a good good leader. It's something that you continually invest in. The work of a good leader is never done. You don't get to a point where you think. I've achieved, I've attained the nirvana of leadership and now I can take my foot off the pedal because we can see how quickly things can turn wrong, you know, can can um, fall apart. So I think that in itself is tough. 
I think being a leader from a BAME background is, is also tough because one, maybe you don't see as many role models uh, because there are not a lot of people like you. And I'm talking, I'm talking purely about positional leadership here in terms of people um, at, at the top hierarchies in the, in the organization. So you don't have a lot of reference points. But what I say to people, especially people from a BAME background is, if you look up in your organization or you look up anywhere and you, there's no role model that looks like you, the onus is on you to become that role model. So you need to do the work, the harder work of becoming that role model. In my career, I had that, I, I came to that crossroad because I looked up, there was nobody that looked like me. So I had to answer that question. Do I just give up on my ambitions because there's nobody that looks like me? Or do I become that role model so that people coming through would have a reference point? And the work of becoming that role model, that inspirational leader, and knowing that you carry the entire weight of the community on your shoulders is hard because as a as a as a as a leader from a minority background and even for women sometimes when you make a mistake it's not an individual mistake it's a mistake that's attributed to the entire community because some less informed people would then say well that is why we never hired them because they're just not good enough so you you are under that extra level of pressure Pakola, it's been fascinating talking to you for the last half hour or so. Thank you so much for your time and best wishes with uh, Career Masterclass as you take it forward. It's bound to be a tremendous success uh, if your passion is anything to go by. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I've had fun. Thank you so much. Thanks, Pakola. Great to talk with you. Thanks for listening. We do hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget that you can find each new episode on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and remember to subscribe so you don't miss out. At Amicus, our bread and butter is helping leaders create consistent results by bringing out the best in their people. If you need support with anything we talked about on this episode, you can find out more about us at amicuslimited.com. This podcast has been done in conjunction with Inkblot Creative. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.